Welcome to ContenderCast, a global leadership and consumer industries entrepreneurship podcast centered on shining a light on bright ideas. And now, here's your host, Justin Hahnemann. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for downloading. Thanks for subscribing and following. It's Justin Hahnemann, the ContenderCast, for shining a light on bright ideas on a Friday. I'm very excited. It's actually a holiday weekend. And uh, not that anyone cares. In a couple months, they won't care that it was a holiday weekend, but it, we care today. Um, we are talking wine, canned wine. You guys are going to love this brand. I can't even wait for you to introduce um, the founder, Marion Leitner Waldman. Um, so great to have you on the podcast, Marion. Um, and thanks for making time before the holiday weekend. It's oh so good to gosh. see you. Oh, my gosh. Thanks right. for for having me. I can't imagine a better way to kick up the. I mean, I I think so. <laughs> but you know, um, it's so good to have you with us, founder of Archeroos Wines. Um, you know, I, many of you probably know the brand, and some of you probably don't know the brand. So that's why she's here, and why we love doing this podcast. Um, we shine a light on great ideas like this. So, okay, um, Marion, let's talk about you. So I, as I was sharing before I hit record, um, your background, incredible, and also not like all in food, beverage, alcoholic beverage, et cetera. How about share a little bit about your story before launching Archeroos? You bet. Well, it's true, Justin. I have a non-traditional background. And as I like to say, that it took a lot of naivete in order to get into <laughs> the alcohol space and start a wine brand. Um, I think it's but- great, though. It's exciting. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, But so my background, if I was to kind of paint it in some general brushes, is that I always love to build things. So starting in high school, I founded a a nonprofit. Uh, When I was in college, I, uh, you know, was really involved with entrepreneurship and entering into entrepreneurship competitions. I did study international studies because actually my first love was really how can we take private sector solutions to public sector problems? Love that. Um, and that was that was how I ended up doing international studies. And I graduated during the crisis uh, and actually got a job working in finance. But I really took that love of then working in um, building micro insurance products uh, for migrant workers. So again, you kind of see that theme of like private sector uh private sector solutions to public sector problems. But, you know, I was 21 and living in New York and a friend posed to me, you know, a very dangerous question, which was, man, you're working (laughs) in finance. How cliche, like you're never going to throw an interesting party ever again. And this was devastating. So what was the question? Devastating to me. (laughs) So the question became, became, you should start a literary magazine. with me right. and basically fund it. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, which, and basically fund it, uh, be the publisher, which is basically like, you know, make sure that we have enough money to go to print. Um, and you'll be surrounded by interesting people. And so Alex Ludlow, my, I tip my hat to you. It was the greatest way to pull me in. Uh, and so I said, yes. And so I was still working, you know, in finance during the day, we were doing this at night. And, you know, this is going to come a shocker to everyone on this audience, but I, you know, a print only literary magazine, you know, that appeals to millennials. It's not a right. explosion proof magazine, a little bit of let's, exactly. let's give yourself credit. Explosion proof magazine. Yes. Amazing. Asterisk. This magazine guaranteed not to explode. Um, <laughs> you know, 
but you were pursuing your creative outlets. I mean, you had a lot of innovation and creativity and all these different roles you had. And then you did, you took it and you actually did something big, right? Yeah. And it was a lot of fun. And I think what it really hit home to me is that like my first love is actually storytelling. And that kind of brings me to how I ended up in wine because I, I love storytelling and I've always loved to drink wine. And that's partly because I think more than any other alcoholic beverage, wine really tells a story of the people and the place uh, of where it's produced. And that's what we, in, in wine, we call it terroir, but that's just a fancy way of saying what I just said in plain English. Um, and, you know, when, ex when explosion proof came to its natural end, uh, it imploded, except it exploded, it imploded. <laughs> it didn't, ex it was uh, not explosion proof. It was imploded. Got it. <laughs> it imploded. Uh, you know, I, at that point was working, I was now working for the world bank in Washington, DC, uh, working in private public partnerships. And I had met my husband, my now husband, who actually did have a history, you know, in the wine industry. Uh, he had helped build a natural winery in the Republic of Georgia. And, uh, you know, one night it was, you know, late and I had to get up really early for uh, a work trip the next day, but I just wanted to have a glass of wine and I didn't want to have to open up a bottle. And totally. that actually was the tipping point of how we ended up starting Archer Roos. And as we did it, uh, you know, we really wanted to bring in these things that I loved around storytelling, but then ultimately, you know, the format that we've embraced has, has selfishly just been a way that we could drink our way to a cleaner planet uh, by embracing these things of, of sustainability. And, and that's, how I, I kind of ended up where I ended up. Uh, I love it. That's very, very yeah. cool. Archeroos, alternatively packaged wine company dedicated to bringing sustainably produced, dangerously delicious wines in a format to fit your lifestyle. Yes, I love wine. I love telling stories. I probably tell more stories, like when I have more wine. Um, and so, that's like a rule. My stories get really good. Um, but you've been at this now, like you're, you're, I mean, it's not like new. This isn't like one year in. You're, I mean, you started this, what, eight plus years ago? So, yep. okay, I, you decide, you know what, I want to, uh, I like this idea of wine. I'd like to start a business around it. Like, what were some of the first steps you had to take to even experiment with it? Yeah. So, you know, as you kind of could hear from my background, like I've always been somebody with like a day job and a side hustle, right? So when I started Archer Roos, it was a hundred percent my side hustle. Exactly. Justin, Got it. I know you understand this. So <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so we, so it really started at the time I was working, you know, for this awesome total badass at the world bank. And I was, I was, you know, in charge of, lots of things related to making sure that, you know, I, I was basically acting as her chief of staff. So I had a lot of, a lot of responsibility and I was traveling with her constantly, but I would steal these hours at the end of the day to, to start to build out our supply chain and, and kind of begin to test these ideas. And I, I worked for two years off the side of my desk. Um, first really seeing like, you know, could I, how could I develop this model in a way that really made made sense and was true to who we were. And um, so the, our model is pretty unique in the wine industry. There's kind of two existing models. One is that you go out, you build a winery, and then you make wine. But the challenges with that model is that you're really restricted 
to what the viability of the varietals you can bring to market because geography and variety is so heavily intertwined. So like an example is California. We think of California, we think of Chardonnay and Cabernet Sauvignon, right? And you go to France and you think Provence, you think Rosé, right? So like geography and style, so linked. And then the other kind of uh, model that's out there is bulk wine. So like you go out there and you essentially buy wine that's already been made uh, that there's just an excess of. And the challenge with that model is that you don't really know anything about how the wine was made. Right. And so you kind of lose some of the the story behind it. I mean, no no, no pun intended, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so the model that we wanted to do was we wanted to build a wine brand that similar to craft beer or craft spirits, we rather than build it off that relationship between a geography and a variety, we would instead build a character who stood for a set of values. And those values are quality, sustainability, and transparency. And we would then travel around the world and make wine from on, of on-trend varietals from the most marketable regions, bring them to the consumers, but we would have that insight end-to-end into our supply chain. But I, I don't have a millions of dollars to do this. So I couldn't go and build lots of different wineries. So what we did was kind of invent, you know, a new model where we went out and we identified great winemakers who would work with us to actually source the grapes ourselves, uh, build partnerships with local vineyards, and then actually rent capacity from existing wineries uh, so that we could go in, produce our wines, and then we would ship them in flexi tanks here to the U.S. where we put everything in cans and kegs. Um, Got it. And so given kind of the complexity of this model, uh, how we started was I we literally broke this out into step-by-step. And it literally was, all right, how do I find a winemaker in Casablanca, Chile, where I want to do a Sauvignon Blanc? Can I even find someone who would want to work with me? Right. And how did you figure that out? Like, that's where I was going to go. Like, remember, I love you. you had an entrepreneur background, innovative, creative, side hustles. But you got to find like a winemaker, <laughs> you know what I mean, yeah. in another country. Like, yeah. how, did you, how did you figure that out? Well, it's we started by like buying a ton of Sauvignon Blanc from that particular region in a price point that we wanted to make wine. And then we actually started researching the brands and who were the winemakers there. And then we we started reaching out to them over email and we had uh, we connected with them via Skype. And eventually we bought a ticket and flew down to Chile to meet with them. And yeah, it was just kind of as simple as like, let's just put one foot in front of the other. We don't have to boil the ocean here. And uh, but the hardest part at the time was convincing them that we were going to do this project. We were going to make high quality wine. And we had this vision for style and the, you know, the structure and and all how we wanted this wine to be. But the the twist was that we wanted to put it in cans and cans, Uh, 250 ml cans. Correct. That's correct. So why? How did you decide 250 ml? Like, and we're going to, you know, that's going to be our approach. It's a great question. So, well, first off, like you have to keep in mind that this whole company was started because I just wanted to have a simple, a better glass of wine uh, without right, without the opening the bottle. bottle. Yeah. Right. Got it. And, and as I was kind of digging into like, why do we even have glass bottles to begin with? There were a couple of things that I learned that really blew my mind. The first was that 
up until the 1970s, less than 5% of all the wine that was produced in the world was actually put into a bottle. It was only wine that was really? meant to be bottled age. Yes. So yeah. then how was it distributed or, or bought before bottles like that? Jugs, <laughs> like wine skins, <laughs> boxes. Like the pirates. I mean, box, box totally, wine. Totally refillable, refillable containers. I mean, up until the 1970s, when Congress standardized the 750 milliliter bottle for taxation purposes, this was kind of how wine was distributed. And the reason for it was because wine, um, most of the wine that we all drink is actually less than two years old and it's consumed within 72 hours after purchase. We're not buying wine to bottle age it. And so the bottle was really only... Uh, developed in order to specifically bottle age wine, certain wines. Interesting. Uh, because not all wine gets better with age. And so <laughs> the second thing that kind of blew that kind of blew my mind was that we actually pay more for the shipping and the packaging than the wine inside the bottle. <laughs> uh, yeah, I and, could see that. I could definitely see that. Yeah. Yeah. And then on top of that, layer on the fact that like Glass glass bottles. So packaging and supply chain is responsible for sixty percent of the industry's carbon footprint, and in sixty, you know, plus percent of this country of the municipalities in this country don't actually recycle glass bottles. I thought that in there the was US. a real opportunity in the U.S. Yeah. And because in some countries yeah. like Europe, I mean, they do a lot of recyclable glass bottle, which works there, and they don't have all that plastic that we have. It's really an interesting. I'm like, why don't we do that anyway? Well whole other topic uh, right. that we can get into about another that's another podcast and, yeah <laughs> that's another podcast that's not, not what i want to <laughs> get into but just focusing on this so we saw this opportunity to solve a problem for the consumer that there could be a way to innovate around the actual packaging and you asked me specifically why the 250 milliliter well we looked at kind of the beer size cans and that would have been half a bottle of wine and that's not a single serve <laughs> Right. Well, for most people, I mean, yeah. We have big pours. We have big <laughs> right. pours in my house, which right. is why we went but, with the two fifty, which 250. is about you know eight ounces. But right. like that, that is just a bridge too far. So that's why we we just liked the way that the that the can felt in your hand. We thought it was a great individual serving size, and um, and that's kind of how we settled on it. And so the idea was really the next stage became how do you us. Uh, like, how do you think about the process of putting wine in a can and keg so that you can get an optimal outcome? Like, so this can truly sure. be a replacement purchase for a bottle. Um, but if you do that, then you finally solve that problem of how do you have a glass of wine on a Monday night without the hangover on a Tuesday? So true. And for those that aren't in the beverage industry, actually, 250 ml is a standard can size. So I'm sure that also had to play into it when it's like, how easily can we get cans? that are already made at a certain size, right? I mean, you can, from a manufacturer perspective, um, it, it's easier than creating your own size. Um, okay, so, and, you know, things things like the, the what everyone may not realize either, you know, like the cap that goes on the can, like those are standard size for 250 ml anyway, not to get too down the hole of like how manufacturing works for cans and bottles. But, um, okay, so you decide this, which is great. Did you have already someone that was going to do the production, manufacturing, putting product together, or did you have to find that and figure that out too? No, we had to find that and figure that out too. Uh, so I literally cold called 
every winery I knew on the East Coast. I cold called breweries. I cold called mobile canning lines, you know, to figure out who could help us do this project. And like, what was their what was their response early days when you were just getting started? Well, you have to keep in mind this was 2013, 2014. Right. It was get out of here. Like RTDs <laughs> weren't even big back then. You know, like people just couldn't believe they were still wrapping their head around craft beer being put into cans. Um, yeah. So it was like it was a big deal to say, no, we want to put wine in a can. Yeah. I mean, I, I think what what a cool idea. And it was at early days, I think, for wine in a can. There are others now, and that's what we'll talk about in a few minutes. But, ha- okay, so I got it. You you, you want to create this business. You go figure out the the wine. You figure out manufacturing. Did you know people would buy it? Did you did people go, oh, yeah, we like the taste of that? Or had you sampled it with some people? Or, I mean, like, or were you just kind of going on faith that I, I wanted this, so others will too? I mean, we were bootstrapping in those days. There was no such thing as faith. Like it had to work. So <laughs> it had to work. It had to work. We were not playing with other people's money. So right. uh, we we no we 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 brought in our kind of first test batch. We canned it here, and uh, we figured out we had a lot to learn. Uh, that was like the right. first time that we put wine in a can. We were like, okay, man, we got it. We knew that there were certain things to control for, and I think you know. Most people in this country still haven't tried canned wine, and the ones that have, um, a lot of them have probably had an experience with, frankly, was not the best. That one, a not <sighs> great experience, and that's largely because people were taking wine that they would have put in a bottle and they would have immediately put in a can. Put in that a can, is problematic totally. in two ways. Yeah, one is that you know cans are just not very forgiving of a format, so we had to really overthink, rethink the process. And it took us seven, you know, over seven years. That's what we've done is really refined this process, partnered with, you know, major wine labs around the country uh, and wine schools in order to make sure that our data was independently verified. But now, you know, our wine is award-winning. It wins in taste tests against bottles. And that's how we've ended up being the official wine of JetBlue. That's amazing, um, which we will get to in a moment. Um, okay, so how long from I want to start a wine business because I don't want to open a bottle of wine to having actually product in hand that you could go show a retailer or even put on your D2C site? Well, that was two years. We didn't have a D2C site at the time. Um, <laughs> two years. Everyone listening, two years. It takes time. Like, okay, so two years, you have product in hand, so then what? Did you have any initial, you know, hits from a um, a retail perspective? Were you trying to just get anybody to try it? Like, what did early days, you know, two years in look like? Yeah, the- well, you know, there's a thing called the three-tiered system in this country. Yeah. So we had to get a distributor. Um, and we finally found one. Uh, and then it was literally me knocking on doors in New York City to try to, you know, get the early people to, to taste it and try it. And the thing that kept me going was, uh, doing tastings and people were like, man, this wine's really good. And I, I actually love that it's in the format. And yes, it does serve sure. a problem, solve a problem for me. And, um, but I would say we had a few kind of tipping point moments. And one was, we actually realized that alternative format really solves a problem for a lot of bars and restaurants. And I'd offered them one-to-one inventory management and ability to offer a fresh glass of wine and really totally. at a good, really good price per ounce. And so we went hardcore after that. So that was really big moment. Um, 
And then, you know, of course, winning JetBlue was huge. And and now it's wholesale is still our biggest percentage of our business, but um, we're about 70% bars and restaurants and 30% retail. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, airlines, a great example, you know, cans are on the cart better than bottles. Bottles are challenging. You pour half of it, you know, a quarter of it. What do you do? Throw the rest away. It's a bottle. Anyway. Yeah. There's uh, that model in that space. I think it makes a lot of sense. Same with a bar, right? I mean, some places serve a lot more beer and liquor than wine. So like, they open a bottle or open five bottles and then you got sit- half bottles and how long do you let them sit there and it tastes bad, you know, like it's, it's r- very cool. Um, what were the early wins? When did you go? Okay. We actually have something here. We got some momentum. Well, our early wins were we got a kind of celebrity chef restaurant group and they started pouring us as their wine by the glass. And that was like a really huge moment. Wow. Um, okay. Yeah. And then the second was, uh, you know, definitely winning jet blue was a huge moment. Uh, and then bringing on when we, during the pandemic, I sent some to Elizabeth Banks and she was enjoying it down a river in Utah. <laughs> No and when she way. called me up and said, I want to be part of this. I totally get what you're trying to do. That was also just another huge <laughs> moment. What do you say to like in that moment? Are you like, sure. <laughs> like, how did you work? Like, that's what does that mean? Invest in, you know what I mean? Like, how did you figure that out? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, she is a badass businesswoman who like understands really how to get shit done. And so I first it was kind of just, it's like, hey, can you write me an endorsement? And then right. it became very <laughs> Just to start clear with basics. <laughs> that like she had so much to offer. And so we ended up crafting this role for her as chief creative officer. Um very cool. And uh and then she ended up investing and and we've been off to the races ever since. That's amazing. Um packaging's great, um, all, all kinds of different flavors. What's your best seller? Like what's really done well? Any and which ones haven't done so well? Um, well, the ones that haven't done well are no, not in the no longer anymore. <laughs> and so, sh- uh-huh. so which ones? Like, it, I, I always love to ask because it's, it's funny. I got feedback from another guest like a couple months ago. I shared this a couple times. That they're always like, "Yeah, you, you're like asking like, well, tell me the good advice and what's what's winning product." But like, ask what doesn't work. Like, what didn't work? It was total failure. I'm like, yeah, you know, it's probably a good idea. So, <laughs> what yeah, didn't you work? You have to invite me on for another episode to walk you through <laughs> okay. all my failures when? next week. <laughs> uh, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> let's go, man. Um, but I, so just some examples of this were like, um, we, we launched a Chardonnay. We thought that the Chardonnay would be like a huge seller for us. Um, but we launched like a very modern style. So it wasn't buttery and oaky. It was really fruit forward and beautiful. Um, and it just didn't move. Uh, and what we found was that, you know, the younger consumer was worried about drinking a buttery oaky Chardonnay. Um, and you know, at a, at, and you know, so it was just kind of a really hard varietal to get our consumer on board with, even though it wasn't that style at all. Um, sure. So we found that we disappointed people who liked Chardonnay. And then the the people who we were trying to bring onto the Chardonnay bandwagon just didn't want to have any of it. So that was one that didn't work. So I guess that the big lesson there is know your consumer. And totally. as you're building your brand awareness and trust, uh, kind of go with things that that your consumers already asking for. Don't think you know better than them. All right. And on the flip side, what's been the high flyer? You know, honestly, like all of our, all of our current varieties, like really work very hard for us. Um, what we found is that 
people have different favorites. And so being able to have that choice has really, because wine is just so subjective. Uh, so being able to have something to choose from. Uh, our sparklings though, are both our bubbly and our bubbly rosé do exceptionally well. Um, but Sauvignon Blanc and Pinot Grigio are, you know, fastest growing year over year. And our Malbec, believe it or not, like has just, it's, I think people had initially really resisted the idea of red wine in a can. Um, but we always say, unless you drink wine with just a straw out of a bottle, like right. pour our wines <laughs> into a glass. And right. we've really been evangelizing that. And then we've seen the, the Malbec really work hard for us as a Love result. It. Very, very cool. Okay. Where did Archer Roos, the name come from and the logo with the moose and the woman on the back? You got to, you got to help me with that. Yeah. So we really wanted to create a different kind of wine brand. Like we didn't want the word Chateau or Ranch Canyon, whatever, any of that bullshit in our, (laughs) in our brand. Like the whole idea was that we wanted to build something fun and accessible. And we wanted to steal from what works well from beer and spirits. And so we decided to create this character, Archer Roos, this badass rebel adventurer um, who is kind of constantly redefining tradition to kind of travel the world and connect with people uh, and find great wines that she, that each wines are basically the postcard of her travels to consumers. So on each one of our cool. wines, we have the people, place, and practices so that you really get to connect to and learn more about the wines themselves and like learn about the place. Um, and she gets to be this avatar that helps you explore the world of wine in a way that's fun and and hopefully not snobby at all. Yeah, no, I don't think there's no snobbiness at all. I like the labeling, by the way, really nice. Um, uh, what's ahead? So think about the next six, 12 months. Um, what's, what, what are you focused on? Is it just more breadth in terms of distribution? Is it new flavors or varietals, I should say? Um, other thoughts on packaging? Like, how are you thinking about growth? Yeah. So I, th- how many of us have had that great glass of wine that then we could never find again? Uh, and that's because I think, right, everybody. <laughs> I raised and even, my hand. <laughs> yeah. And so what we are really focused on is depth of dip- distribution. So wines Got tend it. to go wide really quick. And then, you know, they, they can't, you're sort of selling a few cases in every state. Our goal is really to build a brand that you can walk into a store or restaurant and we'll be there and we'll always be that consistent, high quality offering. Um, that you can always rely on and be part of your adventure and, and wine drinking occasions. So we're really focused on, uh, building out depth of distribution in our core markets. That's good. Love it. Um, not a sexy answer. I, no, but. it's good. It's just great distribution and good core markets. I mean, it's it's important, um, especially from like I, that's why I ask it because some for for some that come on, they're like launching in the next line, the next varietal, the next flavor, the next fill in the blank, and others, it's like, hey, we're we've already got that. We're now we're just sc- scaling. You know what I mean? Um, so cool. Do you worry about the competition? Other can wines? Do you care, or is it kind of like you're you're just going? You know what I mean? How do you think about, or do you not think about the co- competition versus your customer? Yeah. So I think about this the way that Jim Cook used to think about it when he was building Boston Beer Company, which is that if you are trying to change an industry, you cannot do it alone. So I I love great high quality players that 
are in this space doing wine differently and putting the consumer first. I love them. And if you're listening to this podcast and you want to partner or figure out a way to like, you know, to hang together, please let me know because a rising tide lifts all boats in this regard. And we're, we're truly trying to change consumer behavior here. And I believe we have to do it not just for the good of our businesses, but frankly, because climate change is an existential threat to humanity. And if drinking your way to a cleaner planet is just one small way to contribute towards a cleaner planet, then please do this for the sake of my eight-week-old baby. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, but I, so I think about this as like, I, I I want more people in the space. I want people to be thoughtful. We want to like share what we've learned. We want to make sure that people are, are approaching this to, to, to give the consumer quality offerings. Um, and because we, we believe we, we offer a unique value proposition and other people though might have different perspectives in the space and there's room for a lot of us to win. Sure. I love that. Um, and great approach. Um, and I think you're really focused on your customer and product, I think, which is the right things. And then, hey, let, let others do what they will. Um, very, very cool, Marianne. So great having you on. Um, before we go, share with the audience where they can find you, connect with you, buy product, check out your product, et cetera. Yeah. So you can check us out at www.archerroos, that's R-O-O-S-E.com. Uh, and you know all of our wines are available for sale there. Um, also, you can find a store near you right on the site. Uh, to figure out your local Target, Sprouts, or independent shop that is carrying us. Um, and uh, please also check us out on Instagram. Uh, our handle is at Wines. It's amazing. Yeah, you guys got amazing following on Instagram. Uh, great product. Great reviews, by the way, on your site. Um, congrats on that. It's hard to get reviews in the first place, let alone any you know, good reviews. Um, very, very cool. So great having you on. Like you said, we could probably to another episode or two, which we should. Um, and it's I'm excited for you, uh, the brand. I, I love it when you get in and behind the stories. And I think it's cool that you've really linked your product to telling stories and storytelling. Um, very, very uh, great mix. And, and we definitely want to have you back on down the road. Awesome. Thanks so much, Justin. And have a happy 4th of July. The Contender Cast is powered by Contender Brands and is the top global consumer industries entrepreneurship podcast. You can find additional ContenderCast episodes on worldwide podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, iHeartMedia, YouTube, and other preferred podcast platforms. If you would like to be a guest on the ContenderCast, connect with us at ContenderCast.com. This is Brian Benson reminding you that every winner started as a contender. <laughs>